0: I assume that must be a geographic. you to reflect upon your own heart upon your own experience upon your own place in in Christian growth at this point so here's my question for you to reflect upon are you personally are you more inclined to hopelessness or to prideful self-sufficiency are you more inclined in your life towards hopelessness my life is a mess I have I I I am a wreck. Nothing can save me, nothing can change me. Or, are you more inclined towards prideful self sufficiency? Okay, I've got things pretty well figured out. I'm on a good track. I've got it under control. My life is stable and under control. Well, if you all ask me that question, if you all ask me that question, I think I know the the answer pretty quickly. And I I have to say I think I'd be pretty proud about that. That I understand myself. And my own tendency toward prideful self-sufficiency. Some of you might be torn, thinking, you know, I'm such a mess that I struggle with both. I'm proud and self-sufficient and hopeless. Some of you might be thinking, no, I've got this pretty well under control. I've got these problems pretty well licked. Well, no, no matter who you are, whether you're thinking clearly one or the other or both or neither, I think I can promise you, based upon what we know from Scripture about humanity. That all of us, in one way or another, or in both ways, struggle with tendencies towards hopelessness or towards self-sufficiency. This passage that we'll be looking at this morning, 2 Corinthians 3, I believe addresses both. It crushes both, kills both hopelessness and self-sufficiency in our lives. Now, let me just put all my cards, most of my cards, on the table here up front and tell you where we're going today. If you remember this statement, I think it will help you to grasp where we're at at each individual point along the way. Here's the main idea of what I think this passage is telling us. Here it is. God's Spirit is now doing what God's laws could never do by themselves. Let me say that again. God's Spirit is now doing in us, in you. God's Spirit is now doing what God's laws could never do by themselves. I'm going to read all the way through 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen for four, four contrasts that support my main point, my main idea about what God's Spirit is doing that the laws alone could never do. There are f- at least four contrasts in this passage that lead me towards that conclusion. I want you to watch for the contrast in what we experience now, between what we experience now and what God's people, the Israelites, experienced thousands of years ago we experience a more permanent hope, the promises, the guarantees of God's new covenant in Jesus. So there's a more permanent hope. There is a more effective instrument. For Israel, it was the laws written on stones. In this passage, for us, it is the Spirit writing on our hearts. Third, there's a more desirable outcome. It leads us to life, not to death. And then finally, it results in a more dazzling display, a more brilliant display of God's glory. And this is the way the gospel changes us to display the glory of Jesus Christ. We'll see all of these, I hope, as we read through the entire chapter. Watch for them along the way. Watch to see how God's Spirit is now doing in us what God's laws could never do on their own. I invite you to read, to listen as I... Read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You ourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. Our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory and if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep away, to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray this morning in these next few minutes that you would grant us unveiled faces, that we would behold the glory of Jesus Christ, that we would behold his, Your glory as it's reflected in His face. Lord, this will come to us not by our wisdom, our insight, our study, our, our attentiveness. It comes to us from, from You, in the person of the Spirit. And we pray that You would grant us this gift this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you don't know the Bible really well, if you're not familiar with the story that related to Moses and the veil and the Old Covenant and the ministry of death and all this, let me warn you this morning. This passage uses these pieces of unfamiliar language to illustrate a point and to to express a foundational truth, the foundational truth we've already talked about a bit. If you're not familiar with this story at all, I don't want you to be discouraged. You will still be able to grasp the main point this morning. But if you do want to look into it more, let me encourage you, when you have some free time, to, to look into the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. This is the book of the Exodus, how God had taken His people out of slavery in Egypt had brought them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness, and had brought them to a mountain where he built a relationship with them and gave them his laws. That would, that would be the foundation for the, that would be the structure for their relationship as they went into the land that he was preparing for them. Now, you can read about this in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. You can also read about it in, chap, in, in chapters 32 through 34. So Exodus 19 and 20. In Exodus 32 to 34, if you want to get a little bit more background, this is also the, part, of the, uh, part of this is the passage that was read earlier here this morning from Exodus 34, 1 through 10. So the story is that Moses has gone up on the mountain to receive the law from God. While that's all happening, the people are committing idolatry. We won't go into all the detail of what happened there, but just know that Moses came, came back down from the, mountain, from the mountain with the law. He saw what was happening. He threw the tablets down. He wound up having to beg for mercy that God would not destroy the people right then and there. God wound up taking him back up to the mountain. And while he was there with the Lord on the mountain, in the presence of the Lord, he saw God's glory in such a way that the the glory of God radiated from his face so that the people saw it and had to be hidden from that radiance. That's why he veiled his face. And And the bottom line is that God's Spirit is now doing something different from what God was doing among the people of Israel. There, the law that was given, the law that they broke while God was giving it, and that they broke many times thereafter, they had no ability to obey it. And now what we see in these four contrasts, the more permanent hope, God guaranteeing that the promises will be completed, the more effective instrument, the work of the Spirit in our hearts, the more desirable outcome, life, not death, And the more brilliant display of God's glory, God is now causing these things to happen in His people, among us, in His church, in Park Hills Baptist Church. God's Spirit is causing this to take place. What God in the past demanded from His people, God is now accomplishing in His people, among you. You might have seen my son, you might have heard my son, my two-year-old Ian earlier this morning. Ian has a way of, well, just about every morning we send him to his room for about an hour for what we call room time. It's quiet time. He's got books in there, toys in there, all kinds of stuff to do. Some days, you know, he'll, he'll maybe just get a book and takes after his dad, nerdy little kid that he is. He'll just sit in a chair for an hour and read this book. And other days, he will trash his room, all right? Books from the bookshelf everywhere, all the Thomas the Trains and all the, the matchbox cars and stuffed animals everywhere. And one of the rules is that at the end of room time, before he can come out for lunch, he has to have his room cleaned up. Now, he knows this rule. He, he's, he's just two, but he's old enough to comprehend that every single day, he's got to have his room cleaned up before he comes out. But what happens on those days, I think, is, as I can read his eyes... Well, on those days where his room is trashed and it's time for him to start cleaning up, he hears his mother or me say, "All right, Ian, time to clean up your room." And he looks around, and he feels crushed by the weight of all that has to be done. He knows he's got to get the books on the bookshelves, and he can get the books on the bookshelves, but he looks at the stack of stuff between him and the bookshelves that he's got to move just to get to it before he can even start putting the books back in their place. He feels weighed down, and maybe he puts up, puts up a show of putting a couple cars or trains into a basket while we're watching him, but then we leave to go start getting lunch together, and he gives up, and he sits down and goes right back to what he was doing before. He understands the law. He knows what he should do, but within him, there does not exist the will, even the ability to follow through. What this passage is saying in showing what the Spirit does that the laws, on their own, could not do. It's, it's just like, similar to what Meredith and I have to do with Ian, which is we go into the room, and we sit down with him, and we clear out a path in front of the bookshelves. We hand him the books. So that he's then, once, once we hand him the books, he puts them right where they go. Once we pull the basket for the cars and trains to him, he gets right after it. And he enjoys, he loves to obey, because he's getting the help that he needs from his mommy and his daddy. God's laws on their own look to us and really are to us what that mountain of mess is to my son. He feels no ability to obey it. And for us, we're even in a worse condition. We really have no ability to keep all of God's standards, all of God's expectations, all of God's laws on our own. This passage is, telling, is, is painting a picture to us of how God comes in beside us God actually entered human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to experience human flesh like we did. And not just to help us by handing us the books to enable us to do the work on our own, but actually to do all of that work on our behalf. Living the perfect life that all of us should have lived but did not and never will. And also taking upon Himself The penalty that each one of us deserved because of our failure so because of each one of us because of the fact that each one of us have failed to keep god's laws jesus christ entered humanity to take god's punishment for our failure to obey that's the good news of the gospel that jesus did for us what we could not do on our own and that by turning from our rebellion against jesus to receive the work that he did for us on the cross Trusting that He did it, trusting that He rose from the dead on the third day, trusting that He is alive for us, and declaring our allegiance to Him, not to our own lusts, not to our own ways. Declaring publicly our allegiance to Him. Through that message of the gospel, we have hope. We have hope that we'll be freed from the penalty of sin, but we also have hope that God's Spirit will cause us to obey to lead us to the point where we begin to do what God expects of each of us. The law set the standard, but it offered no power to reach that standard. What what God demanded from His people, however, what He demanded from His people, He now, through the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, He now accomplishes in His people. C.S. Lewis put it this way, describing what God's Spirit does in us. He says, it is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better. Okay, this is not what God does with us. He said, it's actually like turning a horse into a winged creature. So the, the horse doesn't just have to work harder and harder to jump. Now the horse can fly. This is what God is doing among us in His Spirit. The law taught, but the gospel, the gospel transforms Do you see how this principle undermines both prideful self-sufficiency and hopelessness? This principle undermines those of us who tend towards hopelessness and towards those of us who think that we can, can get our lives in order by ourselves. Because this passage reminds us that all of us, all of us are subject to the power of the Spirit. God's power is so great that He can and will change His people also reminds us that we cannot change ourselves. We do need the power of the Spirit. Now, how do these four contrasts show us that we need to change? In other words, how should this principle that God is doing now what His laws couldn't do on their own, how should it change the way we think? How should it change what we, what we believe? How should it change the way we respond to what we believe? Let, let, let me lead you through this text to, to a few different ways. First of all, This passage changes how we think about our pastors. So, let me give you a a super quick summary of chapters 1 and 2. Paul had had planted the church in the city of Corinth. Okay, Paul had planted this church about five years earlier. He'd made a couple visits there. He had written them 1 Corinthians, which you may have heard preached from previously. Paul brought the church to Corinth, the the gospel to Corinth. He established the church there, and, and no doubt many of the people in the church on the day that he wrote this letter had been converted through his ministry but something treacherous had happened some of paul's opponents had infiltrated the church we don't exactly know why or who they were or what exactly that why they were opposed to paul in the first place but we do know from paul's writings in second in second corinthians and from other clues in other places in the new testament that they had infiltrated and that they were raising up opposition to paul paul knew that this would be destructive to the church that that Paul had taught them truth that would help them to grow, that would stand, help them to stand strong in the midst of a, of a hostile culture. And Paul knew that these false teachers, that his opponents would not, were not showing love to the church in Corinth. So he wrote 2 Corinthians in order to help the church reconcile with him and to re-embrace his ministry. Now, that's important because we need to understand a little bit of that in order to, in order to understand the beginning of chapter 2. So what we read about in, in, in verses one through three, this, these things about Paul commending himself, about this letter of recommendation, asking do I need a recommendation, That he's, he's saying that because the Corinthians had, had experienced some hostility towards them. And It's Paul, Paul's argument in this chapter, his argument for why the church should receive him again, is it basically this, dear Corinthians, do you really need a letter from somebody else to know that my ministry is based in the Word of God? Do you really need somebody else to tell you, you know, the the church in Jerusalem or the apostle Peter, do you need them to tell you that I really preach the truth to you? No. Do you do you not realize that you, you the church, you are the best possible defense of my ministry. Your changed lives verify that the power of the spirit is present in my preaching. That's what Paul's telling them. He's reminding them of how much their lives were transformed. That they were people who had been tolerating slander against Paul and that by now had begun to, to receive him again. If you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll know that the church in Corinth, what do you know about it? I mean, think of all the sin that you read about in the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. They were divisive. They were suing each other. There were rich people flaunting their riches and excluding the poor people. There, were, there, there was pride in spiritual gifts. There was even pride in in how tolerant they were of sexual immorality. But these people had begun to change. The Word of God through Paul's preaching and writing had begun to change them by the ministry of the Spirit. So no, Paul did not need a letter from Peter or from Jerusalem or or from anybody else to authenticate his ministry. Their lives were all the evidence that was necessary. Now, how does this apply to Park Hills Baptist Church? I have. There's nothing that makes me think that there is divisive conflict in this church. If there is, if there is for some reason divisive conflict in this church, consider how Jesus Christ has changed you. Consider how the, the, the ministry of the Spirit has brought unity in the past. And consider how God's Spirit, through the ministry of the preached word here, what might be leading you to reconciliation in the present. But I don't perceive that to be the case. So, How else might it apply? Well, first of all, let me encourage you to examine yourselves. Do your lives, does your life as an individual, does it authenticate the ministry of the gospel among you? Some of you might have reflected earlier or be reflecting now and think, you know, I see evidence that God's Spirit is working in other people around me, but if I'm going to be honest and evaluate myself, I'm pretty much the same person that I was five years ago. Or 20 years ago, or 40 years ago. I pretty much have the same level of love for the Lord, the same commitment to obedience. If that's true of you, I'm not going to beat you over the head, but I'd want to, out of love, I would want to warn you and encourage you that you should speak to someone about that. Find someone who is an example of godly faithfulness, of biblical wisdom, someone in this congregation that you can trust to speak with you about those things. I know your church well enough to know that the leadership of this church would not judge you, would not look down on you, but would be encouraged to hear that God's Spirit is working in you to the point that though your heart may have been hard for a long time, that the Spirit is now stirring you up to consider how you might need to repent and grow in your faith in Christ. So brothers and sisters, if you would look around at others and see evidence of the Spirit working in them but not in you, we encourage you to, to humble yourself. You will not regret it. On the last day when you stand before Christ and His judgment, you will not regret having humbled yourself on this day. So I speak these words in love and encouragement, knowing you'll be welcomed. But second, recognize, for those of you who might be encouraged hearing that, having having seen that God's Spirit is working in your life, you can look back one year, five years, ten, twenty years and see how you love righteousness more than you did then, you love the gospel more than you did years ago, let me encourage you to recognize that the change in your life is not primarily, it's not ultimately because of your pastor or your pastors. So look at, if we look at verse 3, we see that, 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 um, that, Paul's ministry, that Paul's ministry really was a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but written with the Spirit. It was a result of Paul's ministry, but the letter was written by Jesus himself through the the handwriting of the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 4, we'll see the same thing. In in verses 5 and 6, we see that that there's hope for confidence and that the competence that that we have is from God. So this passage is clearly saying to us that the, the transformational work that's taking place in us is not ultimately because of one human being unless that human being is Christ. Ultimately, the work that is taking place among us, the change is because of the work of the Spirit. Now, there are enough passages that encourage us to give thanks to pastors, to encourage them, to honor them, that I would not disregard your pastor's ministry in the slightest. In fact, Paul says it here in verse 3. He says that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. So, Paul was an instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit, in the the work among the Corinthians. So you should honor your pastor. You should encourage him. You should give thanks to him, not just to him, but to one another as well, to build up his ministry. But even as you do that, remember, do not be dependent upon anyone who is solely human. Your dependence must be upon the God-man, Jesus Christ. High Point Baptist Church does not have any perfect pastors And neither does Park Hills Baptist Church. But both of our churches, both of them have a perfect Savior. We can rejoice in that. Remember, whatever fruit exists is ultimately because of God. This the wording that Paul uses in 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 talking about his ministry in verse 3 shows us it's it's a picture of a kind of a couple things. One is that that there's a letter from Christ. It's as if the pastor is a mailman. He didn't write the mail. He didn't stamp the mail, but he delivers the mail. The mail is from Christ himself. Another word that, that's really in the background of the language that Paul is using here is that, that Paul, didn't, Paul didn't cook the meal. I'm not cooking the meal today. Samuel won't cook the meal next Sunday. We are simply waiters. We are servants delivering the meal to you. A meal that has been prepared, a feast that has been prepared by our King. So, brothers and sisters, even as you, even as you do rightly honor your pastor, do not place your dependence upon him. So this passage changes the way we think about our pastors. It also changes how pastors ought to think about their ministry. So you might be thinking, hey, why are you saying this, Ben? Our pastor's not here, he's somewhere else. Why are you talking to me about pastors? Well, several reasons. Because some of you, I suspect, God might move in your hearts to to encourage you to be a pastor, perhaps in this church, whether paid or unpaid, whether full time or volunteer perhaps even another church, in, an, in another church, in another place, or in another place in this town. God may be stirring you up. So let me encourage you, and let me encourage others among you who teach the Bible in different ways in this congregation, in Sunday school classes or children's church or, or in small groups or in other ways. Let me encourage you with the same mindset. First of all, let's cultivate godly ambition. Verse 4 tells us that our confidence is through Christ before God. We have every right to be ambitious in our pursuit of the mission that God has entrusted to us. Congregation, I want to encourage you to be inclined to trust and follow the godly ambition of your leadership. So when your leadership encourages you, places before you ambitious goals for the declaration of the gospel in this community and to the ends of the earth, be inclined to trust it and follow it. Let's cultivate godly ambition. Let's also guard our hearts. Look at verse 5 for just a moment. Verse 5 says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Paul here says to us that we need to crush in our minds a hiss that we who teach God's Word will hear from time to time. So whether you teach it already, or whether you aspire to teach God's Word, be alert, guard your hearts to crush the hiss of the serpent, our enemy, the devil, when he whispers in our ears, we're pretty talented. We're pretty pretty gifted. We have abilities that other people don't have. And we seem to be able to communicate truth in a way that people want to listen and respond to it and might even be changed by it. And wow, aren't we special? Because we can hold people's attention for a little while brothers and sisters take your heel and stomp on that and use the words of this verse to do it we are not competent competent in any way in ourselves but only because of the work of the spirit let's also give thanks for whatever confidence we do have as a gift so paul has said that he says in verse six that he made us competent he made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. And ultimately, it is not we who give life. It is the Spirit who gives life. So, congregation, I do want to encourage you to give thanks for those who teach God's Word among you. I will not know all of your names. I do know Samuel's name. And I want to encourage you to give thanks for how God has gifted you in Samuel. Let me, let me encourage you with this, that before Samuel was... Uh, the, the, the pastor here at Park Hills Baptist Church in previous ministry roles that he had where he could go and preach in other churches upon request on Sunday, he was the person that our senior pastor, that Juan, he was, he was Juan's go-to guy when Juan was going to be out of town. Out of all the people that he could have called upon to preach here in Austin, Samuel was the one that he went to because he knew that he could trust that Samuel would preach truth and that he would preach truth rooted in the pages of the Word of God. So I want to encourage you with that, with that evaluation from the man that I trust to lead our congregation, that he has also entrusted you with a man who is gifted by God and capable. So let's give thanks. Our minds should be changed in another way. We should be changed in how we think about God's laws and our rules. We should be changed in how we think about God's laws and our rules. So I think there's two, at least two, two really bad streams of thinking in Bible-preaching churches today. One of those streams says that since laws can't save anybody by themselves, let's just loosen up, let's relax. Laws may not even be necessary. We may not even need rules for our kids. Well, actually, we need to learn to submit to authority. That's why Paul wrote these first three chapters, was because the church was rejecting his authority under false teaching and Paul wanted to encourage them, not on a power trip, but because he wanted what was best for them. Paul knew that this church would not be well served if it was led astray. Paul knew that this church needed the authority that, that, that they needed Paul's authority to bless them because Paul's authority was rooted in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, godly authority is one of the ways that, that God blesses His people. The mantra that we'll hear often today, maybe even often in particular in Austin, this mantra, question authority, that has another one of the the whispers, the hisses of Satan behind it. Because ultimately, God's authority, we must not question it. That's what got Adam and Eve into all the trouble to begin with, was Satan leading them to question God's authority. So parents, let me encourage you in this way. When you let your kids disobey you, you're teaching them something. Not just that they can get away with things with you. You are teaching them about God. You are to your children a picture of what God is like. You're a picture of God-given, godly authority. So, when you let your kids disobey, you're teaching them, whether you realize it or not, that, that God doesn't really care whether they obey Him. When you promise consequences and then you do not discipline them in the way that you've promised, You are teaching them that God's warnings of judgment, you are teaching them that God's warnings of judgment are not real, and that our need for deliverance by Jesus is just a fairy tale. You are painting that picture that will stick in their minds for years in the way that you hold them accountable. But then there's another stream, and this other stream says that if we make it hard enough for people to sin, and if we, then, we can just, then we can make them holy. We can make their hearts good. If we build the, the walls high enough to keep the world out, we can make our children into what we want them to be. We can make people into what we want them to be. Churches do this. Christian schools do it. Christian colleges do it. Parents do it. Homeschooling parents do it. And I have every confidence that public schooling or Christian schooling parents do it as well. The problem is that it is grotesquely incompatible with what God said in the Bible. So, right here in verse 6, we see that God's laws could not save apart from the work of the Spirit. And if God's laws couldn't save apart from the work of the Spirit, how much less will the rules that we make be able to save our children from the world, and the flesh, and the devil. Now, I am not saying throw your kids to the world. I'm saying don't trust in your walls. Trust in the work of the Spirit. Trust in a letter from Christ written by the Spirit on our hearts. And then finally, one more way that we need to think about change. One other way we need to change. We need to, th- we need to change the way we think about how we change. This passage leads us to change the way we think about how we become more like Jesus. And here I'm going to zero in on verse 18. Let me read it again. We, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here's what we need to understand about how we are changed to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. First of all, it's a process. This is what Paul means when he says we're being, we are being, in the process of, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. That's what he means. Slowly but surely, the Spirit is changing us so that we look more like Jesus. If you look back in chapter 2, we see that slowly we are being changed so that we smell more like Jesus. We give off the aroma of Christ to the people around us. So, don't be discouraged Brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged if you are not yet what you wish you were, what you want to be. What Paul is describing here is a process of gradual change that will look different from one person to another. Different areas of success and failure, different paces of growth, different amounts of growth, different spurts, and even different tendencies to backslide from time to time. I have some friends, a whole family of friends, they get into these weight loss competitions with each other and i think it's because of their physiology all of them can like drop 25 pounds in what seems to be like no time and then the competition ends i'm not sure whether it's physiology or competitiveness because they're super competitive too but then the contest ends and what happens right back to where they were and maybe even a little bit more i'm kind of the opposite which has its pros and cons I can diet and run like crazy for a month and, like, lose a half a pound. And then I can go off the diet and stop running for a while, and I don't gain, I mean, I've gained some weight, but not as much as you'd think. So there's something different between the makeup of my friends and my, my make. not the, the facial makeup, you know what I'm talking about here, right? Our constitution, maybe that's better. Similarly, from Christian to Christian, your progress of growth will be different. Don't be discouraged if you're not progressing like the person sitting next to you or in front of or behind you in the pew. Be encouraged in your own life as you see progress over the years. This process ultimately depends upon God. That's what we see at the very end of the verse. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is God that it ultimately depends upon. And since it ultimately depends upon God, what can we have? We can have confidence as Paul has told us here, we can have confidence, we can have boldness, we can have hope. We, can, we have a guarantee that God's work will get done. But what do we do with it? What, what, what do we do with this glory? So you see, you probably saw here in verse 18, that, that we with unveiled faces all reflect God's glory and we're being transformed. Now, some of you may also have translations that say that we are we behold this glory or that, or that we contemplate on this glory, I think those words actually capture the idea a little bit better than reflect. We do reflect the glory of Christ. That's what happens when we receive it, after we receive it. But the way that we become, the, the, way, that we re, the way that we receive the glory of Jesus Christ is by gazing on it, by beholding it, by contemplating on it. So, you've seen the, the computer software that grotesquely distorts a picture, right? You've seen it where an eye all of a sudden is really big, or the chin's really wide, or one thing or another. You've seen this. You've posted pictures of yourself on Facebook, some of you. This is what we do with God's image. When we sin, we distort the picture of what Jesus Christ is. But as we gaze into the Word of God to see a picture of the gospel, as we see what Jesus has accomplished for us, and as we see what the Holy Spirit promises to do in us, As we get a picture of how glorious the gospel is, that work of the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out so that we then do reflect God's glory to a watching world. This gospel message that God's Spirit... The gospel message is that God's Spirit gives His people new hearts so that they become a more brilliant display of God's glory. Like the sun. The stars are still in the sky this morning, but the sun has eclipsed the glory of those stars. That is what God is accomplishing in us. So do you see how this passage kills hopelessness and pride? Do you see how it gives us hope that we will change, that we will produce spiritual fruit because the Spirit is making it happen? But you also see that this passage, this passage kills pride because it is, it is not we who are creating that glory. It is God's Spirit putting His glory in you. John Stott, a British writer of the past century, put it this way, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, what do you think is our greatest enemy? He said, Pride is our greatest enemy, and humility, our greatest friend. We need to cultivate a humble hopefulness, a dependent, depending on the work of the Spirit, a dependent optimism for what will be accomplished in us. This passage gives us hope for victory over hopelessness and hope for victory over self-sufficient pride. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, the man who was a slave trader, who then became one of, uh, one of, of uh, his name is slipping my mind all of a sudden, the man who defeated the slave trade in England. William Wilberforce. He became one of Wilber, Wilber, William Wilberforce's supporters in putting the slave trade to an end in England. This is a man who understood what it meant to change by the power of God's Spirit. And he summed up what I think might be our experience as well, and I think this will be, I hope this will be encouraging to you. He said this, John Newton, what God, he said, I- I'm saying this, what God demanded from his people, now he accomplishes in his people, and Newton put it this way, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant it to us to gaze on the glory of your Son and be changed by it, so that we would reflect his glory.